If you're opening up a food business for the first time, you'll find that there are a lot of heating and cooling regulations. Today on Food Ops, we are talking about cooling and reheating. We're also going to get into the melting points of cheese and then talk about what's now trending. Hey, I'm Becca. And I'm Derek. And this is Food Ops. Hey, Derek. Hey, Becca. How's your week been? Pretty good. Hey, did you hear about the uh, restaurant in Burbank? Oh, what about it? The one where they now have saloon doors on the front of the restaurant. Oh, no, I didn't hear that. Yeah. Um, so they've been fighting their own battle there. And um, it seems that they at one point had all their utilities shut off because they were outside of regulations. Oh. Mm-hmm. And their front doors were locked. And so they removed them and installed saloon doors. So they they took off their existing doors and just put the saloon doors on that kind of flap open and mm-hmm. and closed. That's an that's an image I saw. I didn't dig into it too much. Yeah. But that's what I noticed. And since their utilities were cut off, no cooking, right? Right. So they're they're cooking up their food outside. Oh, okay. Using gas grills, I'm sure, or something. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yep. Trying to keep the business up and running. Yep. Trying to stay afloat. Interesting. Yeah. Well, so today we are talking about um, specifically cooling and reheating. So what would I need to know as a brand new chef or business owner, restaurant owner, regarding the world of cooling and reheating? Where do we start? Well, you first of all need to understand that the code has specific regulations in place when it comes to cooling, uh, particularly a time and temperature relationship. What does that mean? Well, it means that after foods have been cooked, they need to be cooled in a certain amount of time to a certain degree. So the code says that after you've cooked a food, you can, you can leave it on the counter because it's going to be pretty hot, more than likely. But once it hits 135 degrees, then the clock starts and you have six hours to get it all the way down to 41 degrees. Sounds intense. It, it is. makes me think of a game show or something. Oh. <laughs> right, with the big clock ticking yeah. away. Yeah. Tick, yeah. Tuck. yeah. Well, you know, it can be. The six hours is actually divided up into two parts. Two parts. To complicate further matters even further. So you have a two-hour window in the first six hours that are the most critical. Okay. I was wondering if there's like a way to to speed up the process or things that you can and can't do. But in the first two hours, that's your crucial. It's crucial to get the temperature from 135 down to 70 degrees. Okay. And what do you advise to, to make that happen? Um, there's, there's a few techniques that operators use to do that. One common method is to get chill paddles or ice paddles. Chill paddles. Yeah. I did not know about this. Yeah. So it's basically a, a bottle. Just imagine like a bottle, maybe even like a a two liter empty bottle. Um, you know, they, they make them for the specific purpose, but I guess even a two liter bottle could work and you freeze it with water. And so it's now an ice block. It's a contained ice block inside. And then you put that down inside of 
uh, soup, for instance, or beans or a large vat of some food that you want to cool. So you're cooling it from the inside out as well as from the outside in if you put it in a, a walk-in refrigerator or freezer. All I can think of is how helpful that would be to have when I run bath water too hot. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Throw in a, a chill paddle or a frozen two-liter jug, mm-hmm. two-liter bottle. Yeah. Hmm. Noted. So back to the topic of the day. Are there any other ways that we can go about cooling our food? Yeah. So in addition to using ice or chill paddles, because those are kind of for large containers, large vats, all of your food might not be in large vats. So there's other techniques that you can use for other food items. So you can imagine uh, having trays of foods and those trays of foods, obviously you can't put ice or chill paddles in those, but you can use a certain type of material for those trays, such as aluminum or stainless steel, because those will conduct heat away from the food faster than say plastic or even glass. So it's recommended for a metal container. And then the metal containers are not gonna be any deeper than four inches with food. Because once you get to a certain you know density of food or a certain volume, then it's going to be much more difficult for the food to meet the time temperature relationship parameters. And then restaurants also may have chill blasters, which are like freezers. And they wrap, it's a freezer that you put the food into and then they, they rapidly cool it down. It's like a small freezer. What other techniques are there for cooling? Well, another common technique is using an ice bath to cool foods down. So if you have a, a pot of food and let's say you're even using the, the ice paddle in the middle of it and you don't want to put it in the walk-in yet, you can set it in an ice bath, which is just a larger container with literally ice around it on the outside uh, and cool it down rapidly from the outside. And if you wanted to set that whole that whole uh, apparatus in the walk-in, you know, that's even better. It's really important to try to get the food down in that. And there's, a, I often see many violations associated with cooling. So it's, it's a common violation, and it has to be monitored very deliberately in order to meet the time-temperature relationships. And the way that you would have to monitor it is by using a probe thermometer. So you would, once your time starts at 135 degrees, you're going to monitor the temperature for the first two hours, ensuring that it gets down to 70 degrees, and then four hours after that, getting down to 41 degrees using a probe thermometer. You said that the process of cooling is when you often see a lot of violations. What are some of the other violations you run into when someone's cooling? Well, I I had mentioned it earlier, but... Cooling down of cooked beans in large quantities is a really common violation because the beans are so dense and a lot of restaurants make such large quantities that it's it's really difficult to do. And a violation that I've seen is I'll go into a restaurant the next day after they've cooked it and they've put it in the walk-in, and it's still like 60 or 70 degrees. And that's after sitting in the walk-in overnight in a walk-in that's, you know, 35 degrees. 
So that's how long food can stay. And that temperature, that, that 60, 70, 80 degree temperature, that's uh, a prime temperature range for the growth of bacteria. So that's why it's really important. And then, of course, you know, once people eat that, they can they can get food poisoning, food illnesses. So in that case, someone might think that they're getting the food poisoning from a meat, which is commonly what we think, right? And right. it's actually from something like beans, which we wouldn't even consider probably. Right. It could be beans. It could be a soup. It could be different chilies. Um, anything that uh, has that large... That consistency that you might imagine needs to be batch processed in large quantities. So what would you advise? What's been the the most successful cooling process for beans specifically? Yeah, it would probably be an ice bath in combination with the ice paddles in the middle. And then it's going to be in a large metal container, a large metal vat. And, And constant stirring too. So if you just... You know, stick the ice paddle in there, and you can use the ice paddle to stir it every few minutes, every 15 minutes or so. Use that ice paddle to stir it just to try to get everything uniform, and that way it'll cool down a lot quicker. You won't have parts of the food that remain out of temperature while some parts are being cooled, cooled properly. And then keeping a cooling log. That's, that's a common method that operators use to actually monitor the time that the food is started has started to be cool, and then four hours later, and then two hours later after those relationships that I mentioned to get to 41 degrees in a total of six hours. Do you ask to see cooling logs? You know, sometimes I do, especially if in the past they've had multiple violations and we've set them up on a, a cooling log procedure to where we, we might require it because they've had so many violations in the past that we might require it. And then, yeah, show me show me your temperature log. Show me your cooling logs. And if they don't have them or if they don't have them in place yet, we will go over the proper process to get those logs instilled so the management can be more aware and can be properly trained in, in cooling procedures. And everyone who works there is just on the same page. Exactly. Right. Yeah, training of the employees is a big aspect to making sure everything gets conducted properly in a safe and healthy manner. Before we wrap up this section, do you have any more hot tips for cooling? <laughs> uh, I like that. Um, I don't think so. I think that uh, I've covered a lot of things. You know, one thing just that uh, I'm thinking about now is I mentioned the shallow pans and You know, the shallower that you can put food in, I I said that four inches is kind of a maximum, but the shallower that you can put the food in, the better. And then even not stacking those pans on top of one another in the refrigerator, because the whole idea of the shallow pans is to get airflow around all four sides. And if you're stacking them on top of each other, then you're, you're not allowing the airflow between the containers. So you can crisscross the trays on top of one another. I've seen that to where you... There's still airflow in between, and so that's a good a good way to save space so you're not distributing things throughout the whole shelving areas in the walk-ins. So clearly we are cooling food for the purpose of serving it later, for saving it and serving it later, which means a reheating process will be involved. Right. What practices do you recommend for reheating? Well, a lot of these foods, so 
if you maybe imagine like a, I know there's there not a lot of buffets right now because of the pandemic, but imagine that there would be buffets of chilies or different soups. And those have generally been cooled previously and reheated and then maintained at the, at the hot temperature out on the steam table. And when they do that, operators need to reheat all of their foods to 165 degrees. That's, that's generally the reheating temperature. Now, if they do have foods in the refrigerator and there's an order, the food can be reheated to any temperature. But if they're going to hot hold any of the foods, then it needs to be reheated to 165 degrees. And, and then held at that temperature? And then held at 135 or above. So reheated to 165. And that can be done in the microwave. It can be done, you know, in the oven, <clears throat> stovetop. However, uh, reheating is going to be accomplished. And then all parts of the food need to be at that temperature. And then it can be held at 135 or higher. Using a proper probe thermometer to measure the temperatures, of course, is uh, always prudent. Hey, Derek, all cheeses are created the same and heated the same and melted the same. True story? Yeah, I don't think so. Okay, let's start with fondue. Fondant. Tell me about the melting point of cheese as it relates to fondue. As it relates to fondue. Okay. Well, when thinking about the melting points of cheese or the melting point of cheese is... Um, of course, understand that different cheeses do have different melting points. So your soft cheeses are going to be have a high water content. They're going to be high in moisture level. And those are going to melt faster. And then your harder cheeses and your drier cheeses, such as Parmesan, will not melt at a, the same temperature that other soft cheeses are going to melt at. So just be aware of that. So when it comes to fondue, you are talking about some sort of a, a softer cheese that uh, doesn't require a high temperature to melt at. And then a way that they do it is to slowly melt the cheese. Because if they do it really quickly, then the proteins are going to coagulate and it's not going to be nice and smooth. It's not going to have that velvety texture. So they're going to melt it nice and slow, and they're going to add, typically, a little bit of acid to it in the form of a wine or a vinegar or lime juice. And again, that keeps the, the fats from separating from the rest of the cheese, and it, and it keeps that nice, smooth texture. I am now extremely interested in the process of fondue making. I want we to learn more about that. You should try it sometime. Hmm. All right. So anything else to know about the melting point of cheese related to fondue? Did we cover all the fondue? I think we covered all the fondue aspects. I mean, there's, there's probably a lot more to it that chefs know that I'm not too experienced with. But that's kind of the general idea about fondue. How about good old-fashioned mac and cheese? Uh, mac and cheese. So that's 
you know, probably going to be made with a a little bit higher moisture content of a cheese. Um, it could be a cheddar. Have some cheddar in there as well. Um, something that melts, starts melting at least around 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And then has a full melt around 130. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, growing up having mac and cheese, it was made with like Velveeta or a process, another processed cheese. Mine was made from powdered cheese in a space oh, packet. Oh, yes, yes, powdered cheese. I remember that too, yeah. Uh, uh, Whatever that was. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's interesting about the Velveeta. So Velveeta does have cheese in it, and it also has a lot of emulsifiers and preservatives in it. Um the law states that it has to be 51% aged cheese and that's oh. it. Oh. <laughs> so the rest of it can be added fillers, anything extras. else, extras to keep it on that shelf a long time, mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> but it melts nicely. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Makes for good memories. Right. So Mac and cheese, when you go into a restaurant and you're, Temp testing the mac and cheese. What temp are you looking for? Well, cheese is a potentially hazardous food. So if it's being held cold, it needs to be held cold at 41 degrees or lower. If it's part of a food or even warmed or cooked, cooked, so to speak, warmed, uh, it needs to be held at 135 or higher. So it still needs to fall in the, the right parameters as far as the holding of potentially hazardous foods. And then finally, pizza. Rounding out the cheese segment with the melting point of cheese that you would use on a pizza. Yeah, so pizza is interesting because you can add different cheeses that have different melting points to it. And for instance, your cheddar and your mozzarella, which has a really high moisture content, those are going to melt. And those are going to, you know, you'll even see a little bit of browning on them. It has the nice brown texture. But if you added Parmesan or some other hard type of a cheese on it before it even baked, then that's going to, it's not going to melt and it'll still, it'll still hold itself in place. It, it might turn brown, but it's not going to melt. So you could have this, this, this mixture of melted cheese on there and then cheese that might have been browned, but not melted. And then just kind of create these, uh, interesting textures and and flavors do you temp test pizza once pizza comes out of the oven it's most likely for immediate service and it's going to be really hot i mean i have tempted it before now some places you'll go into you go into a pizza shop and you'll see maybe some pizza that's being held at room temperature out on a counter and then when you order it they'll cut off a slice or it'll already be pre-sliced and they'll put it in the oven and heat it up for you. And, and that's okay. They just have to use, they typically use a time as a control process for keeping that food out on the counter. And the time as a control process is four hours. So after the food's been cooked, they can set it out on the counter for a maximum of a four hour time period. And during that window, they can reheat it for customer service. 
Uh, and then if there's anything left over after the four hours of time uh, has gone by, then they have to discard it. So when you do check temps of a pizza place, what are you checking? If an operator puts raw meat on their pizza, then it's going to need to get to the proper cooking temperature. So that would be the temperature that I check. Most places put already cooked meats on their pizza, but there are a few places out there who might put um, like a raw, small meatball on there. Not the large meatballs. Those are all usually pre-cooked, but small meatball. Um, even maybe strips of chicken on there. I can't. I don't really think that they do that. I think it's all going to be pre-cooked and then frozen and then put on there and and reheated in the pizza oven. We have a couple of items to discuss now and now trending. At the open of the show, we talked about the saloon and grill in the LA area that is cooking outside now with all their utilities turned off due to violations um, as a result of regulations from the pandemic. But I wanted to ask... Um, actually about restaurants that are operating with their patios open. Are they obligated to have restrooms accessible to the public? Oh, you mean if if they have patio seating available for their customers? Yes, exactly. So the code says that if you have indoor seating or outdoor seating for your customers, then if the facility was built before a certain date, they have to have a restroom available for customers. If the facility was built before a certain date? Yeah, there's a certain date. When a food facility has been constructed after 1984 and has more than 20,000 square feet of floor space, they, they need to have toilet facilities for customers. So that would be typically anything larger than a small coffee shop? Yeah, so, so there, there's a couple of things here. So if the, there's on-site consumption of foods, th- that's one or when the facility was constructed after 1984 and has more than 20,000 square feet of floor space. Yeah, they need to have restrooms available for customers. They always need to have restrooms for employees, but specifically customer use, they do if they have on-site consumption of food, indoors or outdoors. And then finally, I want to put some rum in me cakes and cookies that I sell out of my Miko. Excuse me, I don't know where that pirate came from. It's good. Can I do that? I want to put alcohol in my baked goods and zhuzh them up a little. <laughs> so for your cottage food permit and your Miko permit, these are, of course, home-based permits for your food products. You cannot use alcohol. You cannot do an alcohol extract in it. Because why? Well, the state actually made a... Uh, a determination on that. Um, your cottage food operation cannot have that in there. They said no fun. Now, now your Mikos, they can, actually. Your Mikos for, for your food. Now, I mean, you're not going to have, you're not going to have alcoholic drinks, but if you wanted to add it to the food, then that would be okay. But we're talking about cottage food operations. That that's there's specific ingredients that are only allowed for cottage food operations, and that's where the ingredient cannot contain alcohol. Hmm. So the miko, yes. The cottage food, no. Well, yeah. Generally speaking, yeah. Um, 
alcoholic beverage control might have something to say about the Miko as well. But as, as an ingredient, it would be fine in the food. Well, Derek, this brings us to the conclusion of yet another episode of Food Ops, where if you haven't learned anything today, we hope you have at least learned how to cool your beans. Cool your beans, man. I'm Becca. And I'm Derek. And we will see you next time.